Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Liz Moody Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to find our personal style, getting doctor-approved skincare tips to beat eczema, acne, and dermatitis, or learning how to make our guts strong to make our immune systems as robust as possible. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Alyssa Eppel to the podcast. Dr. Eppel is one of the world's top experts on stress. She is the person leading the research and writing the papers that you see down the line in books and on the news. Her research has been featured in places like TED Med, The Today Show, CBS's Morning Show, 60 Minutes, NPR, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Science Documentaries, and many, many more. She is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, where she directs the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotion Center. And she co-wrote the New York Times bestselling book, The Telomere Effect, a revolutionary approach to living younger, longer. Her new book is called The Stress Prescription. It's an independent bookstore bestseller currently being translated into 15 languages. This is one of those interviews that I have not been able to stop talking about since I did it. Stress is just so pervasive, so all the little tips and bits of research keep being incredibly relevant. So I am so excited to finally get to chat with you all about it. We get into why we get stressed from a biological perspective, how to know when future planning is helping versus hurting you, how to figure out exactly what's in your control and let go of what isn't. This was so important for me to hear. What radical acceptance is and how to practice it. Why cortisol matters and what to do about it. Tactics to increase your ability to respond well to future stress. How stress impacts your microbiome and vice versa. Small daily practices to increase happiness in major ways. Because the goal is not to just not be stressed. It's to feel as good as possible on a daily basis. So I loved this part of the episode. How to deal with the long-term stress of situations like caregiving or fear of climate change. The one thing to do today to decrease your stress levels according to science. What good stress is and how you can incorporate it into your daily life and so much more. As always, we would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I'd love to hear what's resonating, what tips you're going to try. I am at Liz Moody and Dr. Apple is at Alyssa Apple. And if you're listening and you're like, wow, my friend, my mom, my partner needs to hear this part, send them a link. There is literally nobody in this world who doesn't experience stress, and everybody could benefit from learning more about managing it, and sharing is the best way to support the podcast. And if you're listening and you're like, wow, my friend, my mom, my partner needs to hear this part, send them a link. There is literally nobody in this world who doesn't experience stress, and we could all benefit from learning more about managing it, and sharing is the best way to support the podcast, and it is so, so appreciated. Also, really quickly before we dive in, do not forget to go to 100waystochangeyourlife.com to stack a copy of my new book, through the holidays, if you order a copy anywhere and send a receipt to promo at lizmoody.com, I will send you a signed book plate that you can stick in the book and make it an extra special gift. Just send the recipient name and anything specific that you want on the book plate, any saying, anything that you think that the giftee needs to hear to promo at lizmoody.com. 
It is so fun and so heartwarming, and it just feels amazing to see how many of you are gifting my book, my book, this holiday season. It makes me truly so happy, and it is the perfect gift for anyone in your life because the categories are so broad and diverse, so anybody can really benefit from it. Okay, let's get right into it. Let's experience some much-needed stress relief with Dr. Alyssa Eppel. All right, Alyssa, I would love to just dive right in. Can you start us off by telling us why stress exists? Is it a bug or is it a feature? It is such a built-in feature that it's like why we're alive, why we're here. And it's such an amazing feature of how our body works so that we can survive in a constantly changing atmosphere. So as we even stand up from our seats, things are changing. Demands on our body are changing. Our blood pressure needs to rise a little bit before we get up. So there's this anticipatory or planning mode that is built into how our body works. And stress is kind of like planning mode on steroids. It's always looking out for demands. Are we needing to, you know, create extra energy? And so it's really beautiful in that way. The problem is just that, you know, we overuse it. We overadapt. We're so good at stress. It's interesting because you say we're always looking out for demands, but then you also wrote in your book that anticipating problems isn't helpful. And I'd love to just start there. I know a lot of people who would say that sentence is absolutely wrong, that running scenarios and planning for the future is a key component of the future happening according to plan. So what would you say to them? It completely depends on what your video is playing. So one thing that we tend to do is have what we call perseverative cognition. We replay the same thoughts over and over, something that's bothering us. We hold on to that thought. And without even realizing it, we're trying to problem solve almost unconsciously or we're just replaying the future, getting ready in our head, but in ways that are actually not problem solving. They're actually not preparing us. So mobilizing a lot of stress energy long before we have to perform or give a talk, for example, that's exhausting. We want to mobilize it right beforehand. And yes, we want to mobilize. The stress response gears us up for our optimal performance. And so we really want to welcome stress and particularly the type of stress when we feel some control, when we feel that we can manage, because that is energizing, motivating, helps sharpen our cognition, and helps us also feel more positive emotions. So it's actually, in general, can be a positive response in our daily life as we're gearing up to do things that take energy. It's so interesting. You noted that when something is in our control, the stress can be really helpful. I find one of the hardest questions in life to be figuring out what's in my control and what is out of it. Like I have a friend, he's probably the most health conscious person that I know, and he got cancer in his early 30s. And he would have said that his health was at least somewhat in his control, which is why he was taking all of these actions. But then he got cancer. Do you have any advice for making the distinction of what's actually in our control and what we just think is in our control? That is a really good 
question to ask ourselves. We tend to overestimate how much control we have over future outcomes. And so, for example, when we have unwanted situations in our life, when we have situations that we didn't choose, we spend a lot of time trying to control those situations when the structural aspects of it are completely out of our control. So for example, let's say caregiving. There's a lot of grief and sorrow about your loved one's condition. And there may be a lot of pain about their own behavior. If it's someone with addiction or they're just not taking good care of themselves, we really can't control other people much at all. We can do our best in these situations to bring our love, attention, compassion, and listening to caring for others, to this type of stressful situation where we really can't change their illness, we can't change so much of what's going to happen in the future. But it's really about just bringing our love and compassion and our best self. Now, that's a caregiving scenario. But in general, it's really helpful to step back and just ask, what about this situation can I control? Even in those situations that are structural, there's always our response that we control. So there's always something. And then there's just little things around the edge in the gray area that we can do. And those things help us. They help us make the situation a little bit better. And that usually makes a big difference, even though it's smaller things. So that sounds pretty abstract, but I think the general lesson about control is it really is this kind of double-edged sword. When we think we have control, we strive so hard and we live in the future to try to control outcomes. When we don't think we have control, we can actually detach from the outcome and say, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. It's not necessarily under my control. So I'm going to give up a lot of sweat equity about exactly what happens, but I'm going to control how I live now, how I feel now, and what I can do to kind of lay fertile groundwork for best outcomes. And giving up that attachment to outcome is a huge relief when we can do that. So for example, in climate change, I know you just had this gorgeous conversation with Catherine Wilkinson about what we can do. And as part of that, if we are focused on something like what is the level of carbon or greenhouse gas emissions and how can I make a dent in it? That is incredibly stressful. We're going to feel helpless, hopeless, and just give up control. But actually the answer there is, again, it's about those little things we can do in our life that we can touch that we do have control over. And it especially matters with climate because local is global. And so even though we can't really see our effect on the big picture, we are moving the system around. We're part of these complex systems and we're influencing people and the environment in ways that we can't see, but that add up and matter. You have that example in your book of the caregiver who's spending so much time researching the outcomes of a certain health situation, but then they're letting their work completely fall to shambles. And it's a really interesting thing to figure out. I'm sure they would say, oh, the health situation is more important. I need to research this. I need to research this. But you pointed out that is out of their control to a certain extent. So do you think that it's just about having this 
very honest conversation with yourself and getting into the nitty gritty of like, is this really in my control? And if it is not, what actually is? That's the question, Liz. The way you put it is great because there are aspects that we can't control. Usually that's what we care about the most. We want to change things. But there are always the what I can do to make things better for myself or other people. What I like to have people do is to make a list of all of the different things that stress them out. And it can be a big list. It can be really stressful to put it all down on a list in front of you and see the load you're carrying because it all adds up. But you've named it. And by putting on paper, you actually can really figure out what here can I control and what here can't I control. We sort in that way. And of course, there's a gray area. There's a bin in the middle. But if we can circle the things that we can control, that is our problem-solving work. We love to problem-solve, to talk to people, to try to do better. And sometimes these are things that we can't solve on our own. So just figuring out like, who's my partner and figuring this out? And when is the right time? It might be, you know, future Alyssa, who's going to deal with this. And for now, I don't need to. So there's a lot of prioritizing about the things that we can improve because you can only do one thing at a time. And then in terms of the things we can't control, there's the question that we've been talking about. What about this will help me live with some freedom and ease? What about this will help me respond to it better in my own life when I come against this problem? so that I'm not just constantly carrying it around with me, trying to solve it. And then there's also exercises we can do to release our clinging to it, our sense of wanting things to be different. There's, for example, radical acceptance. There are things we can say to ourselves to just let ourselves accept that this situation is exactly as it is in our life right now. And the right now is important because things can always change. Can you explain radical acceptance in the simplest terms? So radical acceptance is a way of opening our eyes and allowing us to see what is in our life, what has happened or what exists in a way that we can then stop wishing things were different. For example, if something happened, you're just so pained by it, you're ruminating about it. We all have experiences like that. Maybe it's a failure experience, an embarrassment, or something you could have done better. You can say things that just hit you in the right spot. And there's different words for different people, but it could be as simple as it happened. Yes, it happened. And things are exactly like this right now. This is reality. This is reality in my life right now. Or if it's something big, chronic illness, disability, this is the life I've been given. And there's things to go with that where you're living with the life that you've been given and living your best life in these circumstances that are, you know, beyond anything that we can change, but really the freedom is within seeing that and living your best life within these conditions, within this body, within these finances, within this job. I also love your analogy of the brick wall or the boulder. Can you explain that? Yes. And this is one (laughs) 
that I use often and people have told me it's been helpful for them. Let's just say, think of something in your life, Liz, and you don't have to share it, but is there something that you wish was different? And is this something you know that maybe takes up a lot of mental real estate in that you think about it a lot, even though you can't change it? And you probably try to problem solve it. And so when we think about the weight we're carrying every day with this unsatisfactory situation, it's heavy. It drags on us. It takes away our sparkle and lightness and ability to see what's in front of us right now and see that what really is and what the beauty is. There's a way to release that. And it's just mental. And we can do it within a few minutes. There's a lot of metaphors we can use. One is if you wrote down all of those stressors that you have, you have figured out how many suitcases are you carrying and how heavy are they? And which of them can you just put down? And if you can release it, of course, you're going to think of it again. It's going to come back. But for now, you can actually consciously say, okay, put the luggage down. And that's a metaphor that particularly helps when you're carrying a very heavy suitcase. When you have, let's just say something like grief that feels so heavy, you can just say, I'm going to take a break from this right now. And I'm going to breathe slowly and I'm going to release the weight, the burden in this moment. So the boulder is another metaphor. And have you tried this? I have. Yeah. I find it really helpful. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell people about it? What it was like? Okay. It's essentially just from my understanding, if you picture yourself with a big rope around a boulder, around a brick wall, and you're pulling, pulling, pulling on it, and it's hurting your hands, and you're getting all of these blisters, and the boulder or the brick wall obviously aren't moving. And the idea is, what if you just let go of the rope? The brick wall or the boulder would still be there, but all of a sudden, the tension has left your body a little bit. Your hands aren't blistering and bleeding anymore. The situation is what is, but your relationship to the situation has now changed. Beautiful. I love it. Exactly. The boulder's there and it's not going anywhere, but you have allowed yourself to drop the rope and dropping the rope not only relieves you of that strain and that attachment, but it also frees up your hands and then you can do something that you can have control over, that you can feel like it's adding to your life. So I had an example, someone who was caring for a sick parent who was striving so hard to collect information about cures. And of course, we'll do that to some extent always, but there's a limit, of course, about how much we can reverse diseases. And then he realized when he dropped the rope that he was able to free up his hands, his energy, his mind, for being present as a loving son and how different that was to be visiting his parent and giving up the worries and the to-dos and the nudges and just really enjoying quality time. It's interesting. I did another podcast with a psychologist who specializes in anger, and we talked a lot about how one of essentially the secrets to being satisfied in life is accepting the unfairness of the world too. And I think part of radical acceptance is this person might 
have a better situation than me in these ways. And that's just the way that it is, like stopping with the comparison and stopping with the anger that this is the life that we got. Mm-hmm. So much wisdom in that. I think comparisons cause so much suffering. There's the quote, comparison is the thief of joy. And really just comparing to ourselves and what we can do to release ourselves from those things should be this, could be this. What we're really talking about in this conversation is not just about what are we worrying about, what can we put down, but the way that stress stays with us in our body unconsciously. We all carry so much. We carry stress even intergenerationally. We're kind of wired for different levels of stress in our life. And so we carry different levels of anxiety and feeling threatened. Now, one of the ways that we're excited to be studying stress now is not just looking at how much stress, what are stressful events, how do you respond to them, how much stress is in your life, but rather really looking at how much true relaxation did you get today, if any, or in the last week? How quickly did you recover from something stressful? And how much is your body able to release stress, anxiety, worry, and tension in the middle of the night? Well, let's say your brain is asleep, your mind is still active. And we know that because we know that when we study the nervous system during sleep, we see a lot of differences in how much people are able to truly relax and reach their what we call the nadir or the lowest point of their nervous system arousal. So for example, people who are targeted for discrimination, people of color, tend to have higher blood pressure at night. And so during the night, when we first go to sleep, our blood pressure dips. But for some of us, we have non-dipping. That particularly happens for people of color but especially if they feel a lot of discrimination, if they've felt that they've been targeted, and especially if they tend to hold on to stress through rumination. So we know that some of these mental habits during the day and these life experiences come with us at night. So we've been studying, what is your nervous system doing in the deepest stage of sleep? Deep sleep. And We know how important that is for our brain health. We really want to be getting as much deep sleep as we can. And so we've been looking in these studies at, well, can we see if something like meditation, slow breathing, different methods are letting us release unconscious stress at night and have deeper sleep with more of this higher heart rate variability or vagal tone. We've started this inquiry And so far, we have seen that, particularly for slow breathing, the more people are practicing a daily practice, and in our study, it was 15 minutes of slow breathing. In this study, we looked at how much their heart rate variability was improving or rising during deep sleep. And the answer was, the more that you are improving your release of stress during deep sleep, the more you are getting relief from depression. We had a pretty strong correlation between ability to let go 
of sympathetic activity during the night and improvements in mood. And so it's a new way of really us just thinking about our health of not just stress is bad, I need to reduce stress. Really, we're going to have stress. We know that we can focus on making it good, you know, using our stress response to do our best and then letting it go. So recovery and then having some deep rest. It's always a goal to do more of a practice that is a deep rest state like yoga or qigong. I think some of us, it's just enough, like there's so much to do. We want to get in regular exercise and we want to also practice mind-body practices that allow us to relax and who can fit in both enough. It's challenging, but I'll just say we could all do better with the deep rest states. I spend so much of my time interviewing the world's best doctors right here on this podcast that it makes my standards so high when I'm looking for new doctors of my own. Truly, I am so picky when it comes to who's providing my care. It used to feel impossible to find good doctors. I would ask everybody I know for the recommendations, and I would scour the internet for reviews and write-ups, and it would take me literally forever. And then when I'd finally found my dream doctor, there was always a snag in the plan. They would either be booked out for a year or not accepting new patients at all or not take my insurance. It was always such a nightmare, and it left me starting right back over again at square one. That is until I found ZocDoc. It is like my dream come true. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. We are talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition you're searching for. You can find therapists, gynecologists, dermatologists, general practitioners, anyone you need. And you can read reviews of those people written by actual patients so you won't get someone with a crappy bedside manner or who isn't up to date on the latest research. You can get a really good vibe before you even walk into the office. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked through ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours, and you can even score same-day appointments. Once you find the doctor you're looking for, you can book immediately right through the app. You don't have to send any emails or get on the phone, which saves so much time. I genuinely do not know where I would be if ZocDoc hadn't entered my life probably still wasting hours away on the internet trying to find the doctor of my dreams. We all deserve the best possible healthcare, and I am so thankful that ZocDoc makes it so easy to find. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Liz Moody and download the ZocDoc app for free, and then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Liz Moody. ZocDoc.com slash Liz Moody. Hosting this podcast has honestly transformed my idea of what our microbiomes are and how critical they are to our health. I cannot even count how many expert guests have cited microbiome health as one of the most key components of overall wellness, from our digestion to our mood to our cognition to our skin health, and it's why I personally have prioritized my microbiome health in the past couple of years. That's why, as you probably know by now, I am obsessed with SEED. Taking Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a part of my daily routine that supports my whole body health. 
I think it is critical to understand that when we think of probiotics, it's not just for the gut health issues like bloating and constipation. They support the entire body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic has 24 bacterial strains that are scientifically studied to support our digestive health, dermatological health, cardiovascular health, and more. As a company, Seed's mission and commitment to research is amazing. They're actively conducting clinical trials to continuously improve their products, including one trial assessing the impact of different strains on GI symptoms for patients with IBS, and another for assessing the effect of the DSO-1 daily symbiotic on post-antibiotic recovery. Their team of scientists formulated the DSO-1 daily symbiotic to have a capsule that actually survives in the gut rather than being killed by stomach acid before you even get the benefits. This is so important. If you're just grabbing whatever probiotic you can find at the drugstore, you might not even be getting the microbiome support that you're expecting due to a capsule that doesn't shield the bacteria. And the DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is not just a probiotic. It is a symbiotic, which means it contains both probiotics and prebiotics, another important quality that you will not see on most drugstore shelves. The combination is so key. While probiotics are the live beneficial bacteria, prebiotics are actually the food that the probiotics need to thrive. Without the prebiotic component, the probiotics that you're taking will be undernourished and far less effective. If you need any more convincing, their packaging is not only beautiful but sustainable. You can refill the little green glass bottle every month with the pills shipped right to your door in compostable packaging rather than using single-use plastic bottles. If you'd like to try Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic or their PDSO-8 Pediatric Daily Symbiotic for kids and teens aged 3 to 17 and see for yourself why I and so many other people in the Liz Moody podcast community love it, I have an amazing discount for you. You can use code LizMoody at Seed.com to get 25% off your first month's supply. Again, that's LizMoody at Seed.com for 25% off. Yeah, you wrote in the book that a mistake we all make is confusing breaks and leisure with true restoration. And I find that I struggle with that because I'm productive and I'm very go, go, go. And then I get a weekend, I get a vacation, and I've almost forgotten how to relax or relaxing doesn't feel satisfying in the same way. So I would love some specific practices that we could incorporate or ways to make our weekend days, our vacation days feel truly restorative. Mm -hmm. Yes. So many of us share that experience that when we are not working, when we're not coping with something stressful, it doesn't mean that we're actually having a true relaxation response. So there's a lot of things working against us. And one is, of course, the screens, having a phone, having a phone present, checking it, that takes a tremendous amount of our attention. And it taxes our attention with cognitive load. We might even be not noticing it, but that we're waiting to check our phone or waiting to see what happens next. So this idea of asking yourself, are you expecting anything right now? And what is it? And can you actually sit back in your seat and let that go and let experience come to you? There are times when we want to lean forward and be like super engaged, but then there are times when we need to remind ourselves, actually, right now, this is okay to relax. And my body both needs this and deserves these states of ease. So I think that 
when we're social, it's a time when we might be having a lot of purpose and pleasure, and that's very important, but it's not the same as a receptive state of deep rest when you're really just letting go of control. You're typically lying down and doing like a yoga nidra or some guided practice. Yoga nidra is the most popular practice on apps like Insight Timer. People are looking for that. They love it. Have you done this? Mm -hmm. And I've done it on Insight Timer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's very popular. And so it's basically guided relaxation. It's visual imagery. And it really is an arc where someone leads you through releasing the tension in your body. Often, And you would say that having some sort of tension relieving practice would be a necessary thing that we should all be including in our daily routines? I love the question, is it necessary? Well, if if very few of us are getting it and we're okay, we can't say that it's essential, but it's optimal. It's a missing ingredient. Mm, That makes sense. Have you done um, any residential retreats, like when you really disconnect for days? I have not, but I found it fascinating, the study that you shared in the book about the two groups of women, and they both were sent to a resort and meant to sort of relax, enjoy their vacation for a week. And one group got meditation training and meditation practices, and the other group just got a vacation. And the meditation group later, a year later, I believe, even if they didn't keep up with their meditation practice, they still experienced some of the positive benefits, which to me would suggest, and I was going to ask you about this, that if we just incorporate like these very deep, intense restorative periods that we can see the effects of those long after. Is that true? Yes. That works in a way we don't fully understand for a lot of people. There is a recalibration of the mind and the body. And that kind of vigilance that we hold has come down a big notch. So you can get those benefits like from a really let's say, intense restorative yoga class. You can have benefits for days. And for a retreat, you can have benefits for months. Part of it, Liz, is not just that you're learning a practice that you're then doing every day. Most of us aren't that conscientious, but you've learned a different way of seeing, of perceiving the world. So often we get out of our head and we get into our sensory or bodily experiences much more course, it's very helpful to use nature or to have retreats in nature. That's one of the kind of ace cards that we have, more powerful effect to help our nervous system. I love that. I think it's a really cool tool to have in your back pocket if you can't commit to a daily meditation practice or a daily yoga nidra practice to do these more intensive doses that have ongoing results. I think that's fascinating. I would love to dive into some of the impacts that stress has on our body. So we often hear about stress leading to cortisol problems and that leading to all these other symptoms down the line, um, sleep issues, increased belly fat, things like that. I would love for you to explain the relationship between stress and cortisol. It's such an important hormone. It's a master hormone. And we know that it gets dysregulated both stuck upward, high cortisol or hypercortisolemia, or stuck in a hypocortisolemic state, way too low. We're just starting to parse out like, well, why is it that some types of adversity or clinical conditions or mental health lead us to excessive cortisol and some lead us to not enough? They both have costs, biological costs. 
We know that a lot of early childhood adversity or deprivation, like growing up in an orphanage, for example, these studies have shown that people become hypocortisolemic. They can't mount the stress response as much. And just at a very basic level, cortisol, glucocorticoids, help release glucose. They're our path to energy. We want that energy boost in the morning. And when we wake up, we tend to have a little spike in cortisol. We want it just right. It's a Goldilocks principle. We don't want hypocort that you can get with burnout and chronic stress. And we don't want to overshoot because then we're like using too much energy and that can be exhausting too. So we want to regulate our stress response we want to create stress fitness. You know, some aerobic exercises or high intensity interval training, these can burn up excessive stress hormones, excessive glucose and insulin because of too much stress. We need that and we need the deep rest. But back to your question about cortisol. So I spent a lot of years early in my research program really hammering out how is cortisol involved in the weight gain and snacking and that part is no longer such a mystery. It's simply that our visceral fat, our belly fat, is very sensitive to cortisol. So when we're having a lot of stress, we're going to store fat in our belly area more. But especially if we're stress eaters, if we're emotional eaters, then we're having a perfect storm for creating fat storage in those cells. And then that goes on to create more of an insulin-resistant state or pre-diabetic state. Cortisol creates cravings, really. Cortisol creates a drive for comfort food, for sugar, for fat. And so that's another thing we can do to help us ride out those cravings is, first of all, work on body practices like we've been talking about, like exercise. One of the things in terms of how stress affects our body is understanding what it's doing at the cellular level. And so just within a day, we are creating a lot of oxidative stress. We create free radicals. That's what we do through living. And that can wear out some of these cell systems that we need. DNA is so precious, it needs to be protected. And DNA can be damaged. And so within a day, we're going to create some damage, but we also need those repair mechanisms. We need all sorts of cellular repair to get rid of excess oxidative stress, to have enzymes to repair the DNA, repair the telomeres at the ends of the DNA. And that's when the deep rest comes in. So chronic stress accelerates the damage and overloads us on oxidative stress. And then deep rest states can help us balance that out and repair the cell. And we just published a paper on deep rest that is on my website under news that really goes into understanding why we think that so many mind-body practices they look so different and we try to say, let's do a heart race and see which is best. But in the end, they're doing the same thing at the cellular level, repairing, restoring. What do you do for your deep rest practice and how often do you do it? Well, not enough, but I know what makes a big difference. So I absolutely love yoga. I love yoga that is alternating between the more let's say high intensity and deep rest states. And for people who can 
have the privilege of getting away. I really believe in retreats as a way to train the mind in different ways of thinking and to allow the nervous system to really recalibrate down a few notches. When we did that retreat study that you were talking about, the amount of changes in the cell were so strong that we could predict if someone's blood sample was day one or day six by like 94% accuracy with machine learning. So what happens is that the cell stops making the proteins that are fighting against immune invaders, that are geared up to help us deal with any threats in the environment, and it restores. The cell turns on the machinery to help repair our mitochondria, to create our growth hormones, both for the brain and the body, and to create telomerase, the enzyme that repairs our telomeres. And to be clear, if we do something like deep breaths to get our cortisol to that Goldilocks state, can that actually have a drastic enough impact on our cortisol levels so that we will maybe experience a difference in our visceral fat levels? We won't wake up in the middle of the night or have no energy at the beginning of the day and too much energy at night, et cetera. Is that mechanism of action effect strong enough? So you're asking a very mechanistic question that I don't think we have a very solid answer for. The flimsy answer is absolutely everything that we can do to create fitness, to create deep rest is going to help us regulate our stress response system and ideally going to normalize our cortisol level. When we do these meditation studies, for example, when we look at how it's affecting cortisol reactivity, what we sometimes see is that it's not changing baseline cortisol, but it's helping us tune up our ability to have a big reaction and have a quick recovery. And so when we're under chronic stress, we have more of a sluggish stress response. And particularly if we have depression, depression is related to having high basal cortisol. And then that means that when we actually have a stressor, we're just mounting a little bit of a response, if anything. So we're not really getting the benefit of the acute stress response in that way. And we don't really know how easy and how quickly we can restore the HPA axis to be low baseline, nice big peaks. Okay. That makes sense. I would also love to talk about stress in the microbiome and how that would impact how our stomach feels, the foods we crave, all of that type of stuff. There was a point where I swore that I had IBS. My stomach hurt so bad with every single thing that I ate. I was changing my diet. I was trying all these supplements. I was literally just eating rice and chicken at one point. And then I moved from a very stressful situation to a non-stressful situation and my stomach problems completely went away. What does the research show about stress in our microbiomes? So much of our nervous system is within our gut. And when we can change situations, change the chronically stressful source, then we can have, you know, this release or relief. And not everyone can change their life situation in that way, but that is clearly the number one question to ask ourselves is, is there some way that we can really alter the sources of chronic stress. One of the most common sources of our chronic stress is our thoughts. So we talked a lot about that, how to release stressful thoughts so that we're not carrying stress with us. But there are so many other sources. We call them stressors 
not stress or stress responses, but actually what's happening in our environment. There's ways we can understand how women's health is, how we have more of these pro-inflammatory or autoimmune disorders than men. Part of the reason people believe is, number one, we have a more sensitized stress response because of estrogen. And number two, we have more embedded social stressors. We tend to have jobs where we are paid less, we have less control, lower status. And there's, of course, stress and trauma. And you know, 40% of women will have had a sexual assault. There are all sorts of traumatic stressors that women and also people who are targeted for discrimination have higher exposure to. So recognizing those and trying to do what we can to buffer those and change the social stressors that we're exposed to is just as important as trying to control our responses. So your question about the gut, the bi-directional path between what signals our body sending us and what our mind and our thoughts are sending our body is pretty strong. And so dealing with gut issues is sometimes a way to help depression and our mood because we know that there are certain biota that create depression. And then vice versa, right, as well, because it's a bi-directional relationship. So dealing with our stress, our mood can have this effect on our gut. Absolutely. So there's a lot of animal models that have shown that how chronic stress is shaping our microbiome and how it can create states of depression. Now, in terms of creating that ability to feel ease, and that's just so hard to get, one thing that we have really understood about how the mind works is that we're so geared up for stress. We're so good at perceiving stress that it doesn't just go away when we go into a relaxing environment. We need to consciously and effortfully refocus our attention onto number one, feeling safe, and number two, seeing beauty and joy and goodness. We don't naturally go there, but we can easily make it a habit to go there. We've developed a digital platform to bring happiness practices to people. And we've just unveiled the results of that in a preliminary way. So this is a platform called the Big Joy Project, and anyone can sign up for it. We've had 70,000 people sign up for it. And what we've done is we've taken these little practices from research, these little studies that show that if we do this thing, like let's say list what we're grateful for, that it can create positive emotion that is significantly higher and it might last a few hours in the lab. So we've taken that into the real world and said, is there any ecological validity to this? Can we test out these practices and see if for people walking around in their typical day, does it create the boost of joy and does it last till that night? And do they feel any better at the end of the week? The answer is absolutely. We have big effects. We've seen big effects in this large sample that we can shift our attention to beauty, gratitude, making someone else happy. And this will actually affect, in many cases, our mood even before bed at night. So these little nudges toward seeing what's right and feeling safe and connecting with others 
are really important. They really do boost our mood. And at the end of the week, we saw really big boosts in emotional well-being and how people trust others and feel about their relationships, even sleep. Is it just about awareness about the good things that are happening all around you or are there activities that are universally sparking joy for people? I think it's both. We have so much beauty around us that we don't notice. Turning on the light of awareness is one way that we can shift our filter away from being attuned to threat and looking for threat and interpreting things, ambiguous things as negative, and then really actually just seeing the goodness that's there. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master said, we're so focused on miracles like walking on water, but actually the real miracle is walking on earth. Can we see the small miracles of everyday life, like eating and having mindful eating be this joyous activity where we're thinking about all the people from the farmer to the table who played a role in this. So we're feeling appreciation, feeling connection, and then we're actually really enjoying the food because we're focusing on the pleasure. And there's a savoring that we can have, regardless of what we're eating, that is turning on that universal reward response that otherwise we could just be completely blind to. I absolutely love a low-lift daily habit that has a big payoff over time. It's why I am always asking podcast guests for little hacks and tips that we can all do easily to live a better life without sacrificing a ton of time or energy. And that's why I love AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I know there are a lot of people who wonder if AG1 is overhyped because so many people talk about it, but in this case, it's just one of those things that's super hyped because it's actually that good. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day, no matter how the rest of the day goes, especially for gut health and immune support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. You can also mix it into juice or a smoothie, but I genuinely love the taste, so I go with water. And boom, you have this incredible insurance that you've gotten your foundational nutrition in from that one-minute habit in your day. I'm always trying to eat veggie-packed, nutritionally dense meals, but I am not perfect, so AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole foods, or superfoods, and adaptogens to cover the bases. I love how it gives me some gentle energy right after I drink it without any jitter so it doesn't stoke my anxiety like caffeine. It gives me a ton of mental clarity and clears any sluggishness or brain fog that I have, which is why even though a lot of people start their day with it, I actually prefer to drink mine in the early afternoon when I have that 3 p.m. slump. And it is not a placebo effect. AG1 has so many ingredients that have been extensively researched for their brain health effects like rhodiola root dry extract, hawthorn berry, and rosemary to name just a few. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything, and they are third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a one-year supply of their amazing vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. This tip is going to save you money and make you so much happier. We're going to talk about doing an at-home mani. It is way easier than you think, and looking down at gorgeous nails is just such an instant infusion of happiness throughout your day. 
Plus, doing the Manny itself is such a nice way to occupy your brain instead of mindlessly scrolling or snacking. I personally love doing it while I watch TV. The key, the absolute key, is the Olive and June manicure set. Olive and June polish is wild. I literally don't like getting manicures done at salons anymore because the quality is worse than the Olive and June polishes that I use at home. It lasts for so long. I'm talking two full weeks, which I have never gotten from a salon manicure, and it doesn't chip or damage my nails at all. And some of you might remember the salon manicure that fully wrecked my nails, and it took me months to bring them back to health. So never again. If you have never tried Olive and June, their Manny system is going to give you everything that you need to get started. You get their file and buffer. You get their straight edge nail clippers, which I absolutely love because you can shape your nails in any shape way more easily. You get their acetone-free polish remove pot, which makes it so easy to remove your polish in seconds and you don't mess up your other nails while you're doing it. You're going to get a cleanup brush. You're going to get the award-winning cuticle serum. I love to keep this in my car so I can just kind of like serumize my cuticles throughout the day. You're going to get the top coat, which makes your nails look so shiny. And you're going to get six polishes of your choice. Plus, they include a genius little tool. It's called the Poppy. You're going to screw that on the top of the nail polish, and then it makes it so much easier to grip and paint with your non-dominant hand. I've been using their Manny system for a few years now, and I'm honestly still shocked every single time at how good it looks and how long they last. The top coat is a serious game changer. As soon as I put it on, honestly, it just looks like I got a professional manicure. And when you break it down, Olive and June costs just $2 a mani versus $35 plus for the overall same result. And that's not even including the time you save, which is so valuable in my opinion. And of course, Olive and June's polishes are always seven free, meaning they're completely free of the seven toxic chemicals most commonly found in nail polish formulas, things like formaldehyde and resin that you want to avoid breathing in. You get to pick six colors with the Manny system. So if you want to know what I would do, right now I'm loving Not a Cloud, which is perfect for the blueberry milk nails that are everywhere right now. And then Lava, which is the cutest corally red. And then Jam Please, which is the most gorgeous lilac that just gives me a huge grin every single time I look at it. They also now have press-on nails and tons of quick-dry polishes for an even faster process. If you want to try Olive and June for yourself, visit oliveandjune.com slash Liz Moody for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash L-I-Z-M-O-O-D-Y for 20% off your first Manny system. I cannot wait for you to try them. And then you said it's both. So the second, are there universal things that by and large the research shows spark joy for the most people? This is the question we're trying to answer. So in this huge study, we hope to get 100,000 people. So I hope people sign up. We have people from different countries, over 100 different countries. And we do think culture is going to shape what people like better. There are some universals that we think are going to come out. So already we see that sending someone a note of appreciation is one of the practices that creates the biggest increase in positive feelings. And I think that's pretty universal. His Holiness the Dalai Lama often talks about how seeking happiness directly is 
a sure route to not feeling happy. And actually the happiness science just supports that so much. It really shows that people who are really seeking their bliss and are actively seeking out happiness are often some of the most unhappy people. But seeking the happinesses of others is a more direct path to feeling true happiness. And that's what our study shows. That's what many of the signs of happiness shows. So in one of our practices, we simply have people think about, well, who are you going to run into today? Can you think of something to increase the happiness of the people you're going to pass, someone you're going to interact with, maybe someone in your house? What's a little thing you can do to show kindness or compassion? And then we ask them to carry one of those out. They think of five things, so they're kind of loaded up to be remembering of how they want to act in these different social situations. And they carry out at least one of these kind acts. And that is something that we know is works in the lab, and now we're finding it works just by suggesting that people do that in the morning. We're mm. seeing a boost, and the boost lasts till bedtime. I love that. And then you also noted that this feeling of safety is important. And you talk about in the book how our stress levels are going up on a societal level, which is really interesting to me because there's also quite a bit of data that shows that by and large, this is the safest time in human history to be alive. But I think there's this pervasive feeling of lack of safety. So I'm curious what you attribute that rise of stress levels on a societal level to and what we can do to feel safe in a world that increasingly does not feel safe? Mm, It's such a good question. I will tell you personally that it's very hard for me to not be reading the news. And there's nothing that brings me down more about humanity than the news. And of course, it's geared that way. It's only focusing on the worst things that are happening in the world. But that's our media diet, and it really does shape our view of humanity. And so one of the most important things is for us to keep a generative and positive narrative about people. There's so much natural tendency to be wired for compassion, for kindness. That's what makes babies happy from day one, cooperating, seeing others laugh. And that's just how we are as social mammals, really relying and trusting that when the people do the best they can, and yes, there is a dark shadow of humanity, and that we have always fought these wars like this. I mean, it's just shocking in this day and age, right? We hope that we have socially evolved beyond this, but we haven't. And so being able to keep our heart open and not having a darkened view of life, of people, of what it means to be alive. Because we're contagious. So we're affecting how other people, especially our youth and our kids, are feeling about the world. So we we have a responsibility to not let the media and that overrepresentation of our dark shadow really decide our, our narrative for humanity. And then you also mentioned these stressors, these things that create stress in our life. I'd be curious if you could share some common stressors that people could get rid of easily with a simple practice or a mindset shift, like the low-hanging fruit of stress? Yeah. Think about your morning. What is one of the most common things that stresses you out on a typical workday? 
the amount of things on my to-do list every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how much do you rush in the morning? A lot. <laughs> this is what we find in study after study. We ask people every day, what was the most stressful thing today? Time stress and rushing, being late, being in traffic, getting kids out of the house. We kind of set ourselves up from the moment we wake up to the extent that we can control it. We need to delete something from our daily routine to create spaciousness, to take out that rigid structure of time is a commodity, rush, 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 that's stressful. I mean, boy, that just spoils everything. And we're all vulnerable to it. So easy. So easy to make it a daily habit. I love that because I think even with podcasts like mine, there's this instinct to be like, oh, we need to learn this. We need to add this in. We need to add this in. And I love the idea, take something out that will be more powerful in terms of your stress than adding something in because you'll create a sense of spaciousness. Like what you're adding in is spaciousness. Mm-hmm. Add in spaciousness. Let's all try that. And that does mean blocking time out on our calendars and on our to-do list, like really thinking about how we can spread that out or just really not taking it seriously, have just absolute essentials and then this wish list so that we're not constantly feeling like we're not enough. We didn't do enough. We don't deserve any free time. (laughs) Is there a way to approach a to-do list that would make it feel like not as stressful? Like, is there a tactic there? It's a really good question. Some of us are very good at feeling that we have to do things on our list that are self-imposed deadlines and that are not essential. So just being really honest about whose deadline is this? How important is it that it's done today? How important is it that I build in this um, social time or maybe it's self-care time? Those are things that we tend to undervalue. I mean, it depends on kind of what life stage you're at. I think older people are much better at prioritizing relationships and caring for others. And they also are better at cutting out, let's just say, social busyness that's not very gratifying. So relationships that are mixed or a typical example is you feel socially obligated to go to a party or a bar when it's really not your scene, not that satisfying, but you don't want to have FOMO. Those are things that we do when we're younger that we know that older people have weeded out unsatisfying or conflictual relationships much more than younger people. So we can take that as a hint, not just have it be a natural wisening process, but like really do an inventory of our social life and ask, okay, with with my limited time, who do I really want to spend time with? And maybe they're not even local, but that's a way to increase the quality of our relationships, which is more important than quantity. I would be remiss to let you go without talking about good stress or hormesis. Can you explain that in brief and then maybe share a few of your favorite positive stressors that we could include in our lives? Yeah, absolutely. I would love before we completely leave the idea of focusing on the good, you just strike me as such a positive person. And I'm wondering if that's like a conscious habit you've made or like what you do that might be 
thought of as like a joy practice. I actually do a practice that's from Dr. Rick Hansen, whom I know that you know. He talks about growing the good. So finding moments of joy, lingering in them longer than you otherwise would and turning up, like amplifying those moments of joy has been really helpful for me. But no, I don't consider myself a naturally positive person at all. I struggle a lot with depression and anxiety. So it's really been a cultivated practice in my life. And that's one tool among many. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure that has helped many people seeing that example. And I also love that cultivating the good and really savoring the positive. That's such a gift. Mm, Thank you. As someone who has studied biological aging, there is an underutilized tool that we have as humans, and that is to use positive stress. Though there's a very beautiful research literature showing that if you apply very short-term, very manageable stressors repeatedly to cells or to maybe worms or rats, they can live longer. But how do we apply that to ourselves? So this is the study of hormesis. And I would say that it's all the rage in terms of biohacks and what people are trying on their own in terms of cold exposure, cold plunges, or sauna. There are other ways to stress ourselves out. Exercise is, of course, a great one when we think of HIT, high-intensity interval training, and how it's just a short burst and then we recover. So people are trying it and experimenting on themselves and figuring out what works. But in terms of doses and frequencies, this all needs to be hashed out through research. And we need a really refined science of hormetic stress. What works for who based on your age, based on your reproductive history and life cycle? So for example, for postmenopausal women, it might be different than for someone who is going through puberty, who's having a lot of physiological stress. So I'm excited that the scientific world is now diving into the idea of using and studying hormetic stress for anti-aging. And personally, I would choose hot over cold any day. And I do find a lot of positive stress from something like high-intensity interval training. Getting me to the stage of doing it is, of course, the obstacle. But once I do it, I'm always happy. (laughs) Without having the dose data right now, how would you suggest that we approach that in terms of, I love sauna, I love cold plunge, but I don't want to do so much of it that it is causing actual stress, not good stress, but negative stress, or I don't want to do not enough of it so it doesn't have my desired result. Exactly. It really is a personal monitoring issue where overdoing it is clearly bad. It's like overtraining. Overtraining physically for extreme athletes shortens telomeres instead of lengthens them. We know that with high-intensity interval training that if you're really doing this and um, in an intense way, you don't want to do it every day. You only want to do it a few times a week. With hyperthermia, it turns out that you don't need many doses of this to help with depression. If you're working on anti-inflammatory responses, then maybe weekly, something that would be ongoing. 
but I do worry more about people overdoing it than underdoing it. And I think that until we have really good guidelines, it's just so important to notice how you're feeling and you should feel restored instead of exhausted after the next day after hormetic stress. Okay. That's a good guideline. Can you just leave us with one homework assignment, something that we can all do after we turn off this podcast to begin to reduce the effects of chronic stress in our lives? Maybe a practice that we haven't talked about yet. Mm. Okay. Let's combine slow breathing with appreciation. So I'm going to suggest that we do it now together instead of when we turn it off because we might check our phone, right? We might get distracted. So let's take this moment and close our eyes and allow ourselves to slow our breathing. Allowing yourself to breathe in fully and breathe out even more slowly and fully than you usually do. And let's think of something in our lives. And it could be a small thing from today that we really feel appreciative of. Something we're grateful for right now. I'm feeling grateful for you, Liz, trying to really find practical ways to help people reduce suffering, and increase their well-being. And then open your eyes. Notice any critical thoughts. Maybe you felt like you didn't do something right. You didn't breathe slow enough. You didn't think of a big enough thing in your life. And just smile at those thoughts. Just thoughts. Slow breathing is probably the quickest, easiest thing we can do. Five seconds per inhale, five seconds per exhale, six breaths per minute. So that's what I wish people try when we end and maybe before bed tonight. There's two things that I just want to point out there. One You had us do it right now, and I love the prioritization of don't put it off. Don't say you'll do it when you have time. Do it right now. And two, I love the simplicity of it. I think sometimes we're like, oh, it has to be this crazy breath work with the ins and the outs and (laughs) all of that, or it needs to be, you know, the cold punch, the sauna, et cetera, et cetera. And I love that you pointed out that just slowing down our breathing, connecting it with a powerful mindset shift, a thought change can have this incredibly powerful effect on both our psychology and literally our physiology. Exactly. It's so beautiful because it's so simple. And if we do it, we will benefit. So I wish for everyone listening that we allow ourselves that at least once a day. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, for sharing all of your beautiful wisdom. I absolutely loved this conversation. Thank you, Liz. Wonderful to meet you. I cannot stop telling people about the larger doses of mindfulness, like a big meditation or yoga session or a retreat, and how that has benefits long-term. It's just such a handy tool to have. Also, you know I love non-sleep deep rest or yoga nidra. I wrote about them in my book, but this episode was such a valuable reminder that having a stress-relieving practice is critical. 
it's so funny. I used to think yoga was just about like sweating a lot and getting in shape, like more of a workout. And I stopped doing it as I started doing other workouts that felt more effective, whatever that meant in my mind that has been so messed up by all of the messaging that we get. But switching my thinking to yoga is actually a mind-body practice, and I need it for things like cortisol balance, for actually restoring my brain. And doing that is as valuable and as important as taking care of my physical body. It has completely changed how I view it. That was a huge takeaway of this episode for me, that just the same as we have our workout routine, our healthy eating, we need a stress-relieving practice in our day-to-day life. I think a lot of us don't think that it counts or don't prioritize it because it actually feels good. It feels like a gift to ourselves. And we have been taught that things that feel good for us should be lower priority and come last. But it is so necessary and so important. So if you take one thing away from this episode, I hope that it's that. Please, please share a link to this episode with anyone and everyone in your life. We all need this information. We all need to rethink our priorities and the ways that we are structuring our days. And if someone shared a link with you and you are new to the podcast, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you're following on whatever platform you like to listen on. All you have to do is go to the main podcast page. That's the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and you will see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. This way, you'll not miss out on any new episodes. They will appear right in your feed every single Wednesday. And you do not want to miss out because we have some very exciting ones coming up, including an episode that will change your relationship with your body and one all about crafting a game plan for the best possible 2024. And do not forget, if you've ordered a copy of 100 Ways to Change Your Life as a gift this holiday season, and it makes a great gift if you haven't finished your holiday shopping yet and you need some ideas, head to 100waystochangeyourlife.com to grab a copy. But once you do that, you can email your receipt to promo at lizmoody.com. You will get a signed book plate. You'll be able to personalize your gift and make it signed by the author, make it extra special. Okay, I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday for the next episode of the Liz Moody Podcast. There is so much incredible science behind red light therapy. There's research going all the way back to 1903 that won a Danish physician a Nobel Prize for showing that exposure to concentrated red light accelerated physical healing. And research from NASA has shown that it boosts the production of growth factor proteins and collagen, among many other incredible things. I am obsessed with red light therapy. It is so science-supported, and I've personally seen huge, huge benefits. I use Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device, which is a red light panel, so I'm not limiting its benefits to my face. I feel like the masks are so popular right now, but I would like to expose my entire body to the red light. That way, it helps with not only my skin, my collagen production, but also increasing energy, decreasing pain, repairing cellular damage, improving mental health and cognitive function, and so much more. You are not spending that much more money to get a panel versus a mask, but you get a much more versatile device with way more powerful effects. Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device gives you professional-grade equipment straight at your home for the best price that I have seen anywhere. 
You can stand your Max panel on the floor on any flat surface, or you can hang it on the back of a door. It is really lightweight, and it is so easily stored away in the closet when you are done using it for the day. You only need 10 to 20 minutes, so Zach and I actually meditate in front of it naked, uh, but there's lots of ways that you can habit stack it into your routine, so you do whatever sounds good to you. Check out Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device now on bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. Bond Charge products are all HSA, FSA eligible, giving you tax-free savings of up to 40%. And for a limited time on top of that, my listeners will get 15% off when you order from bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. That is B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. You will also get free shipping and a 12-month warranty. Go now to get this exclusive offer. That is bondcharge.com with promo code Liz Moody to get 15% off.